electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, emergency funding for small businesses has run out for now. One publicly traded burger chain with more than 500 employees is returning its loan after backlash. CNBC's Eamon Javers. As the politics around it and the public impression around it solidifies, you might see more companies deciding to do what Shake Shack did here. Microsoft's president, Brad Smith. It's pretty amazing to see the resilience of our economy and productivity for many companies. And a lot of it is the technology that we now have today. And the head of New Jersey's largest health system on treating coronavirus cases with the plasma of recovered patients. The early results look promising. I can't think of anything better than this in terms of uh, a hopeful sign. It's Monday, April 20th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Happy Monday. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Over the weekend, a number of protests, though, spurring, uh, springing up, I should say, across the country. I want to tell you a little bit about uh, some of those protests that are taking place in North Car- in uh, Florida, North Carolina, Virginia, uh, Michigan, Maryland, New Hampshire, Texas, California, and others. All of them are demanding that their states reopen for business. Uh, Pressure, of course, has been building on governors in recent weeks to begin the reopening process as total initial jobless claims have surged past 22 million since the outbreak began. Meantime, a NBC News Wall Street Journal poll saying that Americans are worried about lifting stay-at-home orders too quickly. 58% of respondents said they were concerned that the country would move too fast. About 32% said the greater worry was the economic impact of waiting too long. So you see that debate playing out across the country right now. Becky. All right, Andrew, thank you. In Washington right now, the Trump administration and Democratic leaders are moving closer to a plan to replenish that small business fund, the relief fund that's out there for them. Eamon Javers has been looking into that. And Eamon, uh, what do you know this morning? Yeah, good morning, Becky. Well, we know that lawmakers have been told to come back to Washington. Remember, they've been back in their home districts. They're expected by Wednesday. So that's a pretty good indication they're getting close to a deal up on Capitol Hill. Here's how we think the contours of this are going to work out. It'll be about $310 billion of additional funding for the PPP. That's that small business paycheck protection program that's so popular that it ran out of money late last week. $60 billion of that is going to be designated specifically for rural and minority businesses. On top of that, we'll have an additional $75 billion for hospitals, $25 billion for testing, and then $60 billion for an additional small business program. This one uh, is a disaster relief program, so that's $60 billion on top of the $310. So a lot in there for small businesses. The president yesterday gave us this analysis of where we stand in these negotiations. Let's see what happens. But uh, we want to put our we want to take care of our workers. We want to take care of our small businesses. They're really the engine of this country. I can just tell you that we're negotiating with the Democrats and, you know, they negotiate for things that we can't do that we don't think are in the best interests of the people of this country. Uh, We are very close to a deal. 
It does feel like we're close to a deal here, Becky. And you, there's a real sense of fear uh, and frustration out there on the part of small business owners who uh, heard those reports at the end of last week that the Small Business Fund had run out of money. I think lawmakers are going to step up quickly here uh, in order to make sure that there's an additional amount of money going out the door in that direction. The question is whether even an additional $310 billion is enough when you're talking about all of America's small businesses facing severe strain here right now. Uh, the total amount that might be ne needed to deal with that problem is sort of an unknowable unknown at this point. So an additional 310 uh, likely on the way, and we'll see where that lands uh, as we go through the day today. Becky? I'm Jim, wondering about what Andrew was just talking about, about those protests taking place where people want to go back to work in, in, a, in a number of these states where at the same time you have uh, that NBC poll that showed that most Americans don't want things to open too quickly. How does that play out? And is there any sense of that in Washington, what people are hearing back from their districts, back from their constituencies? Well, the president has been linking himself to that protest movement. You saw those tweets over the weekend where he was tweeting out in all caps, you know, liberate Minnesota, liberate this state, liberate that state. Uh, in Virginia, uh, tweeting liberate Virginia with a reference to the Second Amendment, that is guns. Uh, the president uh, linking himself to, to those far-right protesters who have been out demanding that, that various states reopen. Politically, that could be dangerous for the president, because as you say, we are seeing this overwhelming support now uh, for the lockdown effort and for health and safety generally. Uh, if the president links himself too closely to a movement uh, that is seen by too many as fringe, uh, that could hurt him in November. The American public here very much focused on health and safety, at least for now. Now, this is an unprecedented situation, and the dynamic could change uh, as we go forward but here. Amen. But fascinating to watch the president link himself to something that is an opposition movement to right. what his own administration supports. But, Eamon, just so we're clear, the states that he targeted are states that have Democratic governors that he is hoping will effectively right. get removed, correct? I mean, he interestingly didn't go after Ohio, right. for example. Mike DeWine in Ohio is a Republican, the president not targeting him. Uh, but, you know, the president is in a position now of, of encouraging and fueling a protest movement that is protesting what his own administration officially supports. So uh, it's a delicate uh, political dance that he's trying to do here. And, and the payoff might be uh, not good for him in November if he's not careful about it. Um, hey, Eamon, stay where you are if you could. I want you to comment on this next story uh, going a little out of order. But the, the next story is, is really actually about the morality to some degree of taking the money, or at least maybe how the public thinks about this money. Um, Shake Shack, as you may know, says it's now going to return its entire $10 million uh, loan from the U.S. government amid what was a lot of widespread criticism over who got access to that $349 billion fund that was initially aimed at saving small businesses. More than a dozen publicly traded companies with revenue topping $100 million received funds before the program ran out of money. Shake Shack executives said they had no idea that the fund would dry up so quickly. So after they secured separate funding last week, they said they decided they would immediately return the entire $10 million. But, Eamon, the reason I wanted to raise this story with you is there is a, um, a real question mark about who has gotten this money. There is a, a bit of a, a naming and shaming campaign that's going on. Uh, just over the weekend, Harvard University uh, announced that they had taken $9 million. Of course, they have a $41 billion endowment. Um, you can make some interesting uh, arguments on all sides of what this money was for, but how do you think Washington is going to see this? 
Well, look, that was a very nimble move by Shake Shack. I read the LinkedIn post that they put up, and uh, they're just stepping to the side here and dodging any blowback by doing the right thing and giving that money back and saying this is for smaller and independent restaurants. We're fine, uh, and we'll make sure that some of this money is available for other restaurants. We are all in this together. That that messaging is probably going to resonate, uh, and they avoid any backlash from this problem. Uh, one of the one of the difficulties here, Andrew, is that we're not going to have nearly as much transparency in this program as we had, say, back in the 2008 bailout era. Uh, where there was an aggressive effort to target where all the money was going. In this case, there may not be any public database where you can just easily go and look up who got this funding and who didn't get this funding. And so you may see this sort of in ones and twos as different companies are outed, quote unquote. I thought it was interesting in the Shake Shack uh, write-up, what they said about this was there was so much confusion in the early days of this. They really didn't know how this program was going to be structured, who it was going to be for, and how to best take advantage of it. So they decided to just go for it uh, and then see what happened. And I think a lot of people were in the same boat. But over time, uh, as the politics around it and the public impression around it solidifies, companies might find themselves on the wrong side of that. And so you might see more companies deciding to do what Shake Shack did here. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Do you, do you think we're going to see more companies give back? Do you think we're going to see universities? As I mentioned, the, the Harvard example is, is a unique one, given the, given the large endowment that they have. But by the way, lots of Ivy League schools and others uh, took money. Um, should they? Yeah. In large part, you could argue that they weren't. They, they, there are going to be lost revenues here as a result. And, and maybe they would have had to scale back employment if this whole uh, project effectively is a, a you know, employment for all project. Uh, you'd almost want everybody to get the money. But given that not everybody could get the money, it becomes more complicated. Right. You know, there are these unsympathetic actors, right? If you've got billions of dollars in cash sitting around, uh, you know, the public is not going to be sympathetic to you in getting a bailout with taxpayer money. Uh, you know, the other big question here is, how practical is this program going to be for a lot of these companies, right? Because the deal is you take the loan, it's forgiven if you have your employees all on the payroll eight weeks from now. But if some of these companies that are getting this money are in states where the lockdown orders are still in effect at the end of that time period, it's just not going to be practical for them to have everybody back on the payroll because there's no business coming in the door. So for a lot of companies, they're making a decision here to take a loan uh, in the hope that it will be forgiven entirely, uh, but in a putting themselves in a risky position where they could be taking on additional debt if the lockdown order is still in place in their region uh, when, the, when the clock expires on the loan. So it's a very stressful and challenging thing for small business owners to navigate. It's, it's really causing a lot of fear and a lot of pain out there. Hey, Amen. it's not just that. It's that uh, some of these loans aren't even making it to the people who need it most. Uh, they, the program calls for a minimum loan of a million dollars. It was the Independent Community Bankers of America over the weekend called for a, a $100,000 lower limit. And then there was another group, the American Bankers Association, says it should be as low as $50,000. You would think those are the businesses that need that money the most that don't have anything to fall back, especially with some of these ridiculous universities with their massive endowments saying that they need this money and claiming yeah. it. That, that's nuts. Yeah, look, the politics around this, this was put together very, very quickly. And all of these unintended consequences that we're talking about, maybe they just didn't have time to think all of that through. 
Uh, now the question is, can they go back and change the terms of this uh, when they go back and do this new bill? Um, but if you go back and change the terms of it, you're going to have squawks from people who took the original deal who say, wait a second, this isn't fair if you're changing what's available out there right now. It's just a very fluid situation. Nobody involved in this has ever seen anything like this before. So everybody's kind of throwing ideas out there and trying to see what works. I, the thing that concerns me, though, Becky, is just this question of pure scale, right? I mean, you're talking about now something approaching the size of the total TARP bailout of $700 billion uh, by the time you add up these two funds of, of PPP. That's an enormous program, and it may not come anywhere near far enough in order to back up all of America's small businesses. Right. If you're trying to bail out the entire small business sector, you might need a lot more money than that. And the question is, at some point, Congress is going to be tapped out here and not every small business is going to be able to get right. a loan. Hey, Eamon, uh, just two clarifications. Uh, one, my understanding of the disclosure process and all of this is that there was going to be a, a six month window, meaning we wouldn't find you wouldn't be able to find out this information for six months. But that after six months, through Freedom of Information Acts and other things, that there would be disclosure or at least there was the opportunity for disclosure. Is that not right? Yeah, I'm not sure, Andrew, I'm not sure, and I'm going to have to go back and check the, check the text of the bill, whether there's ever going to be any one central database where, where any American right. I think you're right about the one up, central database. Uh, right. Right. So that's, and then, and that's something uh, but, that we but did I do have think you uh, the, previously. Right. And then the, the other quick question, this is for small businesses out there. If, as you said, eight weeks later, um, you can't keep everybody employed, my understanding was, had you kept everybody employed for the last eight weeks, that the grant or that the loan would turn into a grant and be forgiven, regardless of whether you have to lay them off in the, in the, in the future because your business is still right. challenged. Right. As long as, you, as long as you get to that point well, and have, have right. the people on the payroll, it will be forgiven. But a lot of, I've talked to a lot of small business owners who say, you know what? Uh, we don't have any revenue at all coming in right now. It doesn't make sense for me to have people on the payroll. I just can't afford to, to take the risk here of not bunkering down uh, and, and just battening down the hatches on my business as, as low as I can go, uh, going into what is a totally uncertain period of time. So th I think there's a lot of people out there who say, we just might not be able to come back uh, at the end of the time period, and, and therefore we're going to just have to lay all these people off. Hey, guys, I'll just throw one more wrinkle into this. Uh, you, you have the states and the municipalities that need help with this, and that makes an awful lot of sense given how they have been told they have to shut things down. But then you start thinking through some of the politics. And I was reading over the weekend about how uh, in Illinois, I, I believe it's the president of the Senate there, is asking for $41 billion, $10 billion of that to, to bail out their, their pension fund, which everybody's known has been under pressure and underfunded for forever. That's where it's going to get really messy, really tricky, is what, what, what is something that you should deserve bailout money for because the government said to shut down? And, and what is something that you're just trying to lump everything, every problem you've ever had, everything you haven't prepared for, and lump that in to say that the federal government should pick that up? And, the, and that meaning the taxpayers should pick up that. Eamon? That, that's a great question, Becky, because, you know, at this point, we're going to see all of these states and localities coming with their hands out to the federal government. So far, the Trump administration is, and Republicans on the Hill have taken the position that, you know, it's really not uh, the role of the federal government to bail out every state budget everywhere across the country. The president has said, you know, we'll, we'll look at that in the next bill, but they don't want to do it in this bill that is likely to move this week. 
Uh, and the question is, if you're in New York State, have you seen Governor Cuomo holding these press briefings day in and day out? Uh, you know, you, suddenly you see revenues go to zero. The states can't just print money the way the federal government can. So they're in a situation where they have to play with real money, uh, and they've got huge budgetary holes to fill. Uh, how are they going to solve that problem? It is a massive and unprecedented problem. They're looking to the federal government, and you've got a lot of people uh, in the federal government who are saying, look, that's just not our problem, it's not our role. All right, Eamon, thank you. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Microsoft's president on balancing the current COVID-19 crisis with, well, everything else. So anytime we can address the short-term plan and invest and act for the long term at the same time, I think that's the right combination. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. The COVID-19 pandemic has many of us adapting to a new normal, working from our couches, kitchens, basements, and bedrooms, which means tech companies that enable connectivity are in high gear, Microsoft in particular. In March, Microsoft Teams, which supports chat, meetings, and calls, soared to 44 million daily users, up from 20 million in November. And Skype, the Microsoft-owned feature that supports roughly 40% of Squawk Box segments these days, surged to 40 million daily users last month, up 70% from February. Microsoft has been a fixture in households and offices for ages, since before the internet. And although you might think of Bill Gates when you consider Microsoft leadership, one of the company's longest-serving executives is our next guest, Brad Smith. He's the president and longtime chief legal officer. He joined the team as a lawyer in the 1990s during the company's antitrust fight. Here's Becky Quick. Brad, it's good to see you this morning. How are you doing? Very well, Becky. Good to see you. Thank you. It's good to see you. You know, we're, we're watching the Seattle area pretty quickly or pretty closely because you all were some of the first to really see uh, the community transmission of this virus and, and, and we're some of the very first in. It sounds like you might be some of the first coming out, though, too. It's good news to hear that Boeing's going to be restarting some of its production in the area. What, what are you seeing in terms of how Microsoft is operating and just what you're seeing in the community? Well, I think you're right. Seattle was one of the earlier places to experience this, at least in the United States. Uh, we are on the earlier side, therefore, of coming out of it. We flattened the curve quickly. Uh, a lot of this was because businesses brought people home. We at Microsoft brought people home uh, 19 days before the governor issued an order to do so. Um, we appreciate that not everybody can work from home, but it's pretty amazing to see the resilience of our economy and productivity for many companies, for governments and the like. And a lot of it is the technology that we now have today, whether it's the cloud and cloud services, uh, products like Teams that, that you referred to, uh, the ability to put on your show. Uh, and so this is something that we wouldn't have had as a society a decade ago. Uh, I think we're also seeing an enormous focus on the use of data to combat COVID-19. Uh, you know, we're working with public health authorities, whether it's locally, nationally, or, or globally with the World Health Organization, uh, you know, both to you know, identify the trends, support them in the decisions they're making, move 
hospital hospital supplies and capacity. Um, so this is a tech-based, uh, you know, resilient economy. Not completely, obviously, for all the reasons you're talking about, but to a far greater degree than would have been possible, say, 10 or 20 years ago. How much of these changes in the way we work do you think are lasting after after we find a cure or a vaccine for, for COVID? I think there's probably two things that we can say about this. Uh, first is, you know, this has really accelerated the ongoing digital transformation of the economy, not just of the United States, but of the world. And I think there's a greater acceptance uh, of sort of almost remote everything. Uh, you know, we'll see, I think, you know, more people working together in a variety of collaborative ways. Uh, we'll see more people participating in meetings with the kind of technology we've now taken for granted. Uh, I think this also reflects a resurgence of the laptop, if you will, uh, because after a decade of almost constant focus on the on the phone and the smartphone, I think we're discovering that we really do need other computing uh, form factors. And at the same time, I, I think most of us really do like to see other people. We like to leave our homes. Uh, we'll welcome the opportunity to sit down in a room and look out at, in people's eyes across the table. Uh, so I, I don't think we're all just going to stay for, at home for the rest of our lives. Uh, but there will be an acceptance of a broader range uh, of work habits, and we'll see it all come back together that way. Hey, Brad, I know the, the reason that you're with us today is to really talk about a new planetary computer that, that you all are launching that's going to be tracking data about the environment from around the globe. And it seems like maybe it's a weird timing for an announcement like that until you consider that biodiversity loss and wildlife trade are actually making pandemics like COVID-19 uh, more likely to happen more frequently. So, so tell us what you all are doing on that front. No, thank you. Um, I, the obvious issue of the year is COVID-19. Uh, but I think the issue of the decade is and will remain the sustainability of the planet. Uh, and that's why we started this year with a big step forward around carbon, committing as a company that we would be carbon negative by the year 2030. And then we stuck to our guns. We followed that this week with an announcement around biodiversity. We really think that sustainability issues require constant ongoing action in four areas carbon, biodiversity, water, and waste. And the connection to biodiversity is this. We're all, as it turns out, dependent on the other species on the planet. If an insect species becomes extinct, uh, that can affect every aspect of the food chain up to what we rely on as human beings. And the biodiversity of the planet has been under threat, just as the carbon issue has put the planet under threat. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing you know, record declines in terms of the number of species that in turn is dependent uh, on access to wetlands, to coral reef, uh, to you know, forests, trees, the use of land. Uh, so we stepped forward this week with a new initiative in this space that includes what we call a planetary computer. We really have to map all of the Earth's surface understand what is there, the uh, rise or unfortunately principally the decline in, in biodiversity. Uh, we need governments to do this around the world. We're going to need national ecosystem assessments and strategies uh, simply to preserve what we have and hopefully to restore biodiversity in many places. Hey, Brad, um, it's Andrew Sorkin here. Quick question for you uh, about climate climate and what business is trying to do, given what's happening to our economy and, and really uh, the damage it's going to do to so many businesses, 
how do you think about businesses going forward and investing in things like this? You have a huge balance sheet. Um, most companies these days are going to be challenged for some period of time. How does that change the equation for all of this? I think it's a great question, Andrew. Um, look, not everybody can afford to do the same thing, and I think we have to be extraordinarily sensitive to that. Um, but those of us who have the stronger balance sheets, uh, I think, really do benefit by focusing both on the crisis of the day, uh, but also the opportunities and the challenges of the decade. And at Microsoft, you know, we are in the fortunate position of being able to do that. We're certainly not alone. Uh, and I do think that those of us who are able to invest for the longer term, uh, both specifically for the remote technologies that are going to power our future, uh, but also to address things like climate change, uh, are, are going to be happy that we did. Uh, and we put a billion dollars uh, at work uh, in January, a billion dollars to invest principally in new carbon removal technologies and the like. Uh, and uh, I think in the year 2030, uh, hopefully COVID-19 by then is going to be a memory. It's not going to be the thing that we wake up and talk about every day. Uh, but I'll bet carbon and sustainability and biodiversity still will be. Uh, so anytime we can address the short term plan and invest and act for the long term at the same time, uh, I think that's the right combination. The other question I just wanted to ask you is, you know, uh, last month, early last month in March, uh, right in the midst, in the beginning of, of this COVID-19 uh, challenge here in the United States, and it was a, a press release that I think got missed uh, or at least didn't get a lot of attention, uh, Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, uh, stepped down from the company's board. And I was hoping you could comment on what that might mean in terms of the impact you think on, on the company and, 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 and sort of how investors should think about that. Well, the good news for us at Microsoft is the relationship with Bill is very deep. Uh, so he doesn't come to our board meetings four times a year, doesn't participate in the board calls, uh, but he's very much connected to the company. Uh, he uh, remains somebody who connects with us on technology issues. Um, uh, th this week, I've uh, heard from him on both technology issues and sort of remote uh, interactivity, the kinds of things we're talking about here, uh, as well as COVID-19, uh, what he's seeing around the world, what we're seeing around the world, uh, what businesses should be doing, what governments need to do. Um, he still lives less than a mile away. Uh, he's a neighbor, among many other things. So uh, I think uh, you know what we've really always benefited from in terms of Bill's engagement uh, is his his intellect, the breadth of his curiosity, the depth of his understanding of issues. Uh, and we're looking forward very much to continuing to do that. I know that's true for Satya Nadella as our CEO. I think it's true for all of the senior execs at the company. Hey, Brad, I want to thank you for being with us today. It's good talking to you and hope to get you back soon to talk more about uh, how the company's operating through this. Next on Squawk Pod, the head of New Jersey's largest hospital system. He has recovered himself from coronavirus, and he's talking about the innovative use of plasma from COVID-positive patients to help those who are sick. I think it's just a great way for people who have gone through this experience and recovered to really help others. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. 
FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Researchers around the world are exploring new ways to develop a treatment for patients with COVID-19, including testing existing antiviral drugs and new compounds. One potential treatment that has garnered attention is known as convalescent plasma therapy. The approach involves giving patients an infusion of antibody-rich plasma from people who have recovered from the virus. The Mayo Clinic is currently the lead institution providing coordinated access to the convalescent plasma, a method previously used to treat influenza. In fact, it was used during the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918. Here's Dr. Gianrico Ferruja, CEO of the Mayo Clinic, speaking to us last Friday. About 200 patients have received it. Anecdotally, as you said, there have been some really encouraging results. Results of patients who have been on a ventilator who are able to be extubated the next day. But, like anything we do at Mayo Clinic, we need the scientific rigor behind those initial anecdotes. Therefore, we'll be soon looking at the first 200 cases and then continue to analyze to make sure that we actually subject this initiative to the same rigor as any other medication or pharmacological agent. After the segment aired, the Mayo Clinic reported a surge in patients receiving the convalescent plasma, up to 700 as of Sunday night. For more about the treatment and to see if you're eligible to donate plasma for the trial, you can go to uscovidplasma.org. And for more on how convalescent plasma is actually being used today, Becky Quick and Joe Kernan spoke with Robert Garrett, CEO of Hackensack Meridian Health, New Jersey's largest health network. Here's Becky. Let's talk a little bit about this and, and, and maybe just explain a little for people who didn't see that segment on Friday, don't know exactly what this is. When you're talking about the convalescent blood plasma, that's people who have gotten sick, have gotten better, but they still have the antibodies in their blood. How do you take and use that? So um, this is actually uh, a very inspiring uh, story. If you think about all the tragedy that's been out there, all the pain and suffering from COVID-19, here just in the last week, we've had over 3,000 volunteers who have um, donated their, their blood, their plasma. And what, what happens is uh, they're tested for uh, antibodies. And if they have a certain concentration of uh, antibodies, uh, then those antibodies are put into a serum and they're infused in patients who are very, very sick with COVID-19. There is some uh, anecdotal evidence that this is uh, very, very promising. You know, we just started the study. Uh, we are participating in the Mayo Clinic study, but we also are doing our own serum as well at Hackensack University Medical Center. So, uh, as I said, the early results look promising. Um, I, I can't think of anything uh, better than this in terms of uh, a hopeful sign. And if you think about diseases in the past, uh, whether uh, whether they be uh, measles or uh, more recently uh, SARS. Uh, antibody uh, serum has really been used as an effective treatment. So we are, we're all hopeful uh, that this uh, study is going to be successful and that this will be, you know, a very legitimate therapeutic um, agent to uh, really fight COVID-19. So very exciting so far. I, I know it's early, but what happens, at least anecdotally, with some of the patients that you've tried this on? 
So, you know, it, it is kind of early yet, uh, you know, but we did see, as an example, we uh, the first patient that we infused actually was a, um, a woman who was 33 weeks pregnant. And uh, I can tell you, she's mm -hmm. doing a lot better now. Uh, she's had uh, she's had a couple of the infusions started about a week ago. Again, you know, one person doesn't make a, um, a trend or a conclusion, um, but I have to tell you that that was very, very encouraging to see. And I, I'm happy to report both uh, she and, the, uh, and her, uh, her baby are, are, are doing much better. That's fantastic news. Um, some really of your own is. doctors are participating in this and donating their own plasma too, right? Yeah, so in that particular case that I just mentioned uh, with the 33-week uh, uh, pregnant uh, woman, she, um, uh, she actually received the infusion from one of our, our doctors. And uh, what a great story that is to, you know, have one of our doctors who recovered from uh, the coronavirus be one of the first uh, donors. And uh, he had the uh, antibody in sufficient concentration that we were able to infuse uh, his antibodies, uh, his plasma into this patient. So it's, it's really great. And as I said, you know, 3,000 people have already stepped forward. Uh, we're expecting that to really ramp up significantly. You know, because this story is being covered by, by, you, by you guys and, and others out there, I think it's just a great way for people who have gone through this experience and recovered to really help uh, others. And some of the sickest uh, uh, patients are, are actually receiving the, the plasma infusion. So we're, we're really excited about it. There's also other trials going on um, throughout our um, health network that are showing some uh, promise. Uh, you might have heard about the uh, drug uh, remdesivir. Yep. Um, that's a study that's yes. being sponsored by yep. Gilead. It seemed to work, the, the plasma infusion seemed to work on SARS and it seemed to work uh, on H1N1, uh, but not so yep. much on Ebola. I, but Ebola, was so, the mortality rate was so much higher, I, I don't know if anybody's antibodies worked. Uh, even, your, even your own antibodies are, are tough with Ebola. Th that makes sense. And then, so maybe this will, we should be positive about this having positive effects with, with COVID. I think so. I think, you know, again, early promising signs, still uh, still a ways to go on the uh, on the trial. And I'm happy that this is actually uh, part of a national effort because um, it really needs to uh, it needs to be. And as I said, there's there's other there's other therapies out there that are being um, uh, tested under trial now that look uh, that look promising as well. And I think that the idea here is if we can get some therapies that actually are, are tried and expected to work, Hopefully, we'll be ready for the next surge, which, as we've heard from Dr. Fauci and others, could come as early as uh, as next fall or early winter. All right, doctor. Thank you. And thanks for everything. We appreciate it. That's Squawk Pod for today. On our rundown tomorrow, Howard Schultz, Starbucks former chairman and CEO on the devastating effects of the coronavirus shutdown on small business. I hope you will listen. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to this podcast, Squawk Pod, wherever you listen. Tweet us anytime at Squawk CNBC, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.